Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Twyla Braze, a registered nurse, PHN, president and co-founder of Citizens Council for Health Freedom, and author of the book Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. And Twyla Brace, welcome to The Schilling Show Unleashed. Well, I am so glad to be here. Thank you. This book has been published now. I think you're in your third printing of it, and it's very important you keep updating the information. Let's go back to the beginning, though, and talk about the genesis of electronic health records. Where did this all begin? It was not, as the American public thinks, uh, something that all the doctors in the hospital sort of decided together to do. In 2009, the Recovery Act, and within that law, there was another act that mandated that every hospital and every clinic have electronic health records, or they would receive reduced payments for every Medicare patient. However, it's not just any electronic health record. What was mandated was a government-certified electronic health record that would do what the government wanted it to do, not necessarily what the doctor or the hospital wanted it to do. I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about my own time in my doctor's office and, and seeing the doctor these days with an iPad or some other electronic device in hand and really paying little attention to me and more to data entry. Is that unusual? No, that's actually required, and that's what people don't understand is when the electronic health record was mandated. It was mandated in 2009, but they all had to have them in place by 2014. But then regulations also came out, and they were called meaningful use regulations. And so the doctors had to use the electronic health records meaningfully, according to the government's definition of that word and according to those regulations. And meaningful use, I have an entire section in the book about meaningful use actually showing uh, definitions from the, the government and the things that they have to do to have used their electronic health record meaningfully. And really, it's all about data collection and data sh- reporting or data sharing. And so that is why the doctor is doing that. And if the doctor does not do that, then the doctor is unlikely to get paid the full payment at the end of the day by the government or the health plans because both are requiring this. That's the reason. Plus, the doctor wants to get it all done during that time. And that's the mandate. Seeing you taking care of you, listening to your full story, examining you, touching you, you know, to to really make you feel cared for. That is not the mandate. The mandate is to collect the data, share the data. And if they don't do it, then they will likely have to do what they call pajama time. And pajama time means that they go home, they might have a meal with their family, they put on their pajamas or not, but then they spend the next two or three hours of documenting the data, reporting the data, sharing the data. 
It sounds atrocious and it sounds counterproductive, but that's where we are. Twyla, I want to ask you, because when I go to the doctor these days, particularly if it's a doctor I don't know, I'm very, very hesitant to provide a lot of information. In other words, I hold back some things which I think are probably not relevant to the conversation at hand because of the fact that they're taking this electronically. Am I going too far? You're not going too far. You're being cognizant of the reality. And I think, you know, one of the first places that patients start to feel a bit uncomfortable in that realm is with the questionnaire or the questionnaires. So sometimes they're asked to go onto a patient portal in advance of ever getting to the doctor's office. And there's a plethora of questions that the doctor's office wants answered. Or they come to the doctor's office and they're either given a paper form to fill out or they're given a tablet, an electronic tablet to go through. Either way, what patients tend to notice or start to notice is that a lot of these questions have nothing to do with the reason why they are coming into the doctor's office. And they may indeed have uh, all sorts of behavioral health questions, sexual health questions, a family relationship questions, you know, guns, do you have guns at home? You know, there are these kinds of questions that make people worried about why is the doctor uh, asking this and do I have to fill it out? And unfortunately, most people, because when you're a patient, you're vulnerable. It doesn't matter if all you have is a sore throat, you're still vulnerable because you can't get what you need by yourself. You need the doctor's office. You need the clinic. So people feel pressured into filling out the answers or responding to the answers of of, um, all these questions. There is a great uncomfortability, I think, amongst many of the American population who is a patient. I've heard the questions particularly asked of my kids by doctors, and of course we don't allow that, uh, and we don't allow them to answer those questions that you just referenced. But I've got to ask you, for adults, and I understand what you're saying about being intimidated or vulnerable, What if we just don't answer? What generally happens if we just say we're not answering that question or leave a blank? I regularly don't answer. And then I also encourage anybody who ever hears me talk about this subject not to answer anything that they think is not relevant or they're uncomfortable with. Now, several things can happen as a result of doing that. One, particularly if it's an electronic pad or tablet, is that they'll be told, well, you can't get to registration if you don't fill out all of the uh, questions. But I can assure you that you can tell them, go find a manager and get that manager to let me bypass all these questions because I'm not going to do that. And then it it does happen that the manager does allow that. And then the, the person does get registered and gets to see the doctor that day. So that's one of the things that happens. If it's a paper questionnaire, you just go through and go, okay, I'm going to answer these five questions and the rest of these 20, I'm going to leave. And sometimes the staff will come to you and say, "Uh, you missed. You missed a bunch of them. And you can say, yep, I know. I'm not comfortable answering those. But we need the answers to those questions. Why do you need the answers to those questions, (laughs) right? Well, I'm here for my foot. And why are you asking me about my entire health history? Then oftentimes they relent. Um, sometimes uh, they can get very persnickety, particularly about the HIPAA uh, question or the acknowledgement that you have read the notice of privacy practices, which I always encourage people never to sign, never to sign that they refuse to sign, just to ignore it completely or cross it out. 
And that one, they don't like at all. And some people have actually missed their appointments um, because they have refused to do that one and the office has refused to see them. But usually you can sort of argue your way around it. But the thing that I will say for your listeners is I'm a nurse and I find it sad and tragic and wrong that you should have to come armed to protect yourself into the exam room. The exam room always used to be a sanctuary, a place where you could say confidential things and know that they were, weren't going to be repeated, know that you had to say those confidential things in order to get the care that you needed. The doctor wasn't going to say anything that was part of the Hippocratic Oath because you're a vulnerable person. But today you do have to go in to protect yourself if you care about your privacy and you care about your doctor being able to treat you the way you want your doctor to treat you. I'm so glad you said that, Twyla, because I have felt like that before, but I've never heard it articulated. Is this something that's widely reflected upon in in today's medical community, the things that you just shared with us? Yes, although I think there's a lot of doctors. I'll just say several things. When it comes to not answering the questions or particularly not answering HIPAA, um, a lot of the doctors and their staff have been told that if the person doesn't answer the HIPAA question that the clinic or the hospital could be found in violation of HIPAA and therefore be fined with a very high penalty. But that's not true. Their attorneys have told them that, but it's actually not true. It's, it's in the law that they have to make a good faith effort to get you to sign it. And those are the words, good faith effort. But there's nothing in the law that requires you to sign it. And as a matter of fact, a regulation from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services says if you don't sign it, they need to sign the form and say that you refused and that's good enough. But they don't know that. So that is true, you know, like almost all across the country. Um, But when it comes to um, doctors and the violation of your privacy by asking you all these intrusive questions, probably a lot of doctors, they aren't the ones asking the questions. They aren't the ones seeing you when you've got the paperwork in hand. So they kind of miss it. But I think they would be uncomfortable if they knew you were uncomfortable. But a lot of times they don't see you, right? That's their staff seeing you. And then the last thing I would say is we have established something we call the Wedge of Health Freedom. And this is a directory, an online directory of cash-based practices. And they don't take insurance and they don't take government payments and they aren't under meaningful use and they aren't under the regulations and they don't have to answer the, uh, ask the questions or report the data. And so we encourage people to go to jointhewedge.com, jointhewedge.com and find a physician, find a practice. We have specialists, we have a uh, family practice. There are some dentists even that have started uh, in the wedge and see if you can find one in your location. And if you know a doctor that does that kind of practice where you just have to pay per month, you have to pay just per service, but no insurance, no government, encourage them to get on the wedge so more people can find them. Now, this is a fascinating concept, and I do know some physicians who are doing this, but what's always troubled me about it is that people are not able to use insurance, and I'm not saying that's not a good thing because I understand why, but how do you get over the cost of things if you're not able to use insurance and if you're paying for insurance and not using it, or is there another route here? Well, I think there's maybe a different way to consider it. So most people who have insurance today have these enormous deductibles. And so if you're using cash, you will likely pay less 
particularly if nobody even knows you you have insurance and you say you're paying cash, uh, you're likely to pay less, maybe even um, up to half the price because you're paying cash, because you're paying at the time. And that means that you use up less of your deductible. That means there's less money out of your pocket at the end of the day because most people are never going to reach their deductible where they can actually tap into insurance. That would take a catastrophe. Now, that's for most people. So that's one way to just think about it. Uh, but the other way is to think about what you get in a direct primary care practice, which you pay every month for, um, or what you get in a fee-for-service practice, which you pay per service, and they have an actual menu, a list of services. Oftentimes, these practices, they've got several things that the other practices don't. They spend more time with you. They might even come to your home. Uh, they're not as expensive as you might think they are. Like a lot of the direct primary care practices are 150 for for an older adult, 150 dollars a month, and that is sometimes 24/7 access to them, 30 days a, a month. And so it's a lot less money than to go just one time into the doctor's office, which may charge you 150 dollars for that one visit. Uh, oftentimes, direct primary care practices, uh, fee-for-service practices that don't do government and don't do insurance, they'll they'll do the labs, and some of them will do the labs as part of as part of your one hundred and fifty dollars a month, and so and some of them will have um, common medications, and instead of paying let's just say a dollar a pill, you'll be paying two cents a pill mm. because they get them in bulk. So there are actually I heard one direct primary care doctor say that it cost him more. The coffee that in his office cost him more than the EKGs. It's pretty remarkable. So the EKG is really very inexpensive. But if you get it somewhere, you're going to be charged a lot of money to have that EKG. We're talking with Twyla Brace. The book is Big Brother in the Exam Room. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment. Support this podcast online at shillingshow.com. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at News on Twitter. Chilling Show Unleashed. We continue on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Twyla Braze. The book is Big Brother in the Exam Room, The Dangerous Truth About Electronic Health Records. One of the things people probably aren't aware of, but you bring this up in the book and they should be, is prescription tracking. So people think they get the prescription at different places and maybe even from different doctors. Is there a central clearinghouse? And if so, what is the danger there? 
this was a law that was passed uh, in the mid 2000s. I can't remember exactly the year, but it said that doctors had to start using electronic prescriptions. So most doctors do, and most patients think nothing of it. They'll give CVS or they'll say Walgreens, and it'll be sent, you know, to there. But what they patients don't realize is that there's an entire uh, tracking system here that's in place, and that tracking system goes right down to what pharmacy they got the medication. Did they pick it up? So there's a tracking of whether they picked it up. And then if you go to a pharmacy, oftentimes they will be um, hooked into a system where they know where you got your last prescription or they know things about other prescriptions that you have that you may or may not have gotten through them. So it depends on the pharmacy. That is not all pharmacies now today, but that is where they're going. They're also the ones who are leading the charge a unique patient identifier, one number uh, used across the entire system for prescriptions. That is also not fully implemented yet, but they are the ones leading in that direction. And so I like to tell patients that, you know, you can ask for a paper prescription. You can just say, I want mine in paper. Now, you don't have to have a reason, but if you want to have a reason, if it makes it easier for you to say that, you can say, I want to shop around for the cost of my medication. So I need a paper prescription because I don't know where I'm going to go. Some people get a paper prescription because they're going to travel. But usually the reason that, that is easiest to use is you're going to shop around because you are, particularly if, you're, if you want to pay less for that prescription. Is there any danger, Twyla, in using a service like GoodRx that allows you to shop around and then gives you a coupon code? I'm not quite sure what the business model is there. Yes, I think there is more investigation to be done for GoodRx because if you look very carefully at the GoodRx, the small language, the, the fine terms print of service, of GoodRx, yes, you'll see that they get to look at your records further than you think that they do, and then it becomes very hard for you to actually get out of GoodRx. Where do you go? Does the pharmacy take you out? Uh, are they able to take you out? Once you sign up, you're just in for that and then the sharing of the data including the potential sharing of any of the medical record that is held by the pharmacist is also part of the data that GoodRx can have. And so this is another thing people don't understand is that the pharmacists are working into the position of or the whole pharmacy industry of having access to the patient's full medical record. Now full medical record I think <laughs> there's so many patients that that say to me, or people who say to me, you know, I don't have anything to hide. Well, the fact of the matter is, unless you have looked at your medical record, you do not know if that is true. That's one thing. But the other thing is you do not realize how everything in your record, even though you don't think it's something sensitive, can be used to build a profile on you. And the other thing is, let's just say that you got treatment for, okay, well, let's just use something really um, um, depression or something, mm -hmm. right? You don't want anybody else to know other than that practitioner that you're being treated for depression, but that's not how it works. And as a matter of fact, all sorts of people, your physical therapist, uh, your occupational therapist, um, your pharmacist, whomever can find out uh, like a different pharmacist can find out that you have been treated for depression because they are starting to be able to tap into the entire electronic health record. 
I want to talk a little bit more about pharmacists because I had my own experience in our family. We tried to get some ivermectin about a year ago from Kroger Pharmacy who told us no, even though we had a prescription. I fought them for about three months and finally got it. It was a little too late and I found another source. But again, the pharmacy, which used to be a place that was advocating for us and helping us, seems to have turned hostile to many of its customers. Well, the pharmacy has become part of the industry. And I think that has happened across the entire healthcare industry is it's all been consolidated. It's it's under control of bigger players. That's one of the reasons why going to a mom and pop pharmacy, a small pharmacy you uh, independently owned or a compounding pharmacy is where people found ivermectin. These, uh, these pharmacies that are not under large corporate headquarters. But the other thing is what you were having trouble with is the fact that the FDA came out and called ivermectin dangerous. And therefore, even though they couldn't mandate that pharmacies not dispense it, what the states often did, the state pharmacy boards often did was they sent out a letter then to all the pharmacies and said, you know, thou shalt not, except for, you know, certain conditions. And even people who had those conditions, particularly those with like rheumatoid arthritis who are trying to get their hydroxychloroquine, they found their, their uh, access to it cut. Um, you know, they could only have a certain number of pills and they'd have to go back and back and back because they weren't allowed to have their full prescription. Um, or you would find governors, like in the state of Minnesota, the governor uh, actually did an executive order that said that pharmacies could not uh, distribute hydroxychloroquine and um, other medications for COVID because, of course, the standard line was there is no treatment for COVID. Mm. But, of course, there was treatment for COVID. And so, yes, your pharmacy aligned against you and it aligned against the doctor. That was a position that no pharmacy should ever take, that they could decide because they're not the doctor. They're not the medical doctor. They're not the one responsible for saving the life or determining the life. They're the one for dispensing a legal medication that a doctor has ordered. This has been a crime against patients all across the country. That's something that their doctor ordered. The pharmacist refused to provide. And so we look at these pharmacies and uh, in, in many states, including here in Virginia, we have right to try laws and yet they still refuse to prescribe this. What is the reason? What, what was the fear or what was the purpose of them denying hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin? Again, both of them with long safety records. Well, I think it's just because, you know, the government is the only one in our country with police power, which means that you can be fined, you can be imprisoned, you can be, you know, arrested. That's what the kind of power that the government has. So when the government comes down, either in the um, shape of the FDA, the, you know, the federal government or governors, or when their uh, corporation comes down and says, you'll be fired if you do this. And they've got a family to feed, you know, they've got a house mortgage to pay for, you know, whatever. They don't want to get fired. And so there's just a lot of power against the pharmacy to tell them what they could and could not do. Some pharmacists may have been very opposed to this kind of power, but they uh, acceded to it anyway uh, because of these other concerns in their life that they might have to deal with and they didn't want to. There is something going on online. There has been for a number of years now, and I know many people who have uh, fallen prey to the curiosity 
of getting their DNA checked out through a service like 23andMe, and I know there are others. I'd love for you to address why people should be wary of doing that. So the very first thing people should do if they're even thinking about it, you know, for, forget whatever they think the exciting discoveries mm-hmm. could be, right? Mm-hmm. They need to go in and read the fine print because in the fine print is third-party access. Every one of them, as far as I know, has third-party access written somewhere deep in the fine print that allows them to provide the person's DNA to other people, to outsiders, to organizations, or in the case of uh, several cases recently, to the police, uh, as the police are looking for someone who's a criminal. And indeed, criminals have been found as a result of this. But this is a, a search and seizure of somebody's DNA without their consent. But they would, the like 23andMe would say, well, you did give your consent when you agreed to have the testing because you'll see in the fine print that we can give it out. And so that's one of the concerns is just to understand how broadly their DNA could be shared and that there are things in your DNA that say certain things about you that may or may not come true, but could be presumed to become true and therefore becomes a profile of you, whether or not it would ever happen to you. Um, The other thing is 23andMe and those organizations, there are articles and people can search for them and find out that they don't really know what they're talking about. They really, you know, they've got percentages of this possibility or that possibility. And a lot of it is probably not even true because they really don't know. But it has provided a very huge industry for, you know, this kind of genetic discovery for everybody who's excited about it. But it has also provided a huge industry for those who want access to other people's DNA. So, for instance, 23andMe started their own uh, genetic research arm they have all of this DNA. They can now uh, do this. They can do all this research. They can get federal dollars to do this research. And so it has become a uh, money-making experience for them or opportunity for them above and beyond whatever you paid to get your DNA checked one time. You know, in considering all the things that are in your book and in reading about this subject, I've thought for a while now that it's time for a parallel system a parallel medical system that we could have. And you you mentioned the cash doctors, and I understand that's a good alternative. But what about for hospitalization and other sorts of larger procedures? Is there a parallel system available, or do we need to have one? So it's very exciting to me, actually, that you use those words, a parallel system. So we are building a parallel system, a disruptive parallel system that we're calling the new framework for health freedom. It will use the wedge Uh, the Wedge of Health Freedom, this online directory, as the place for everybody to find the parallel system in every practice and every pharmacy and every lab. And eventually, yes, every hospital, cash-based hospital in the parallel system. Now, I'm thinking about your your listeners. Your listeners are thinking cash-based hospitals, oh, how's this going to work out, right? I I know what a hospitalization costs. Well, actually, In a cash-based system, hospitalization would be so much less, it would actually be looked at as affordable compared to today's prices. Because in a cash-based system, there are no third parties. There are no health plans demanding all of this stuff to be done, demanding all this clerical staff to do all the reporting and all the 
bill submission and all the retroactive utilization review and all of this stuff, the amount of money that we all pay in the healthcare system for the administration is far, far, far beyond what we pay for the actual service provided. So in a cash-based system, much as the Surgery Center of Oklahoma has shown all of us, the prices can be 50 to 90 percent less. That's what they are at the Surgery Center of Oklahoma. One, they have paper medical records. They take only cash. There's no government. There's no insurance. And so they have shown us the way or the proof, actually, of how inexpensive care can be. Uh, The other thing is there could still be charity. And then you realize how actually affordable charity is for those who provide it. Because a lot of the equipment doesn't have to cost as much as they charge today. The services don't have to cost as much as they charge today. We don't need all the people picking up all those offices uh, in the hospital and in the administration and all the data clerks and all of those. We don't need all those people. So yes, we are building a parallel system because that's the only way we're not going to end up in socialized medicine, either the corporate version of socialized medicine, which is essentially what we have today, where the health plans control the dollars, the data, and the decisions, and the doctors, or the government version of a socialized system where everybody just works for the government. The government says what you can and cannot have in care and you, when you when you can't have it anymore, at what age it's not even available to you. Our organization, Citizens Council for Health Freedom, totally opposes a socialized healthcare system and knows that we are just going there in that direction through the corporate version. And eventually, members of Congress want to just flip it. As soon as everybody is used to being told no, as soon as they can't control their own dollars, as soon as all the doctors are under control, we'll just go into a socialized system. But we say no. Let's build the parallel system. So right now there's 350 or maybe even now 360 practices on the wedge. There are four cash-based pharmacies and there are several dentists and we want labs and we want radiology facilities and we know doctors, I know doctors personally, who are actually thinking because of COVID, COVID has a silver lining. Uh, these doctors got ousted from their hospitals. And so there are doctors seriously thinking about how they're going to start uh, cash-based independent hospitals. One doctor said, we need to pay for hospitals like we pay for our attorneys. And so it's not that medical care is totally inexpensive. But you can save for it, and then you can have real insurance to pay for the catastrophes. So we want real insurance. That's not a health plan. That's not the health plans of today. That's not Cigna. That's not United Healthcare. That's not Kaiser. Those are health plans. Those are the foundational pieces of the corporate version of socialized medicine. We need real insurance, the kind that we used to have. So this is not rocket science. We used to have real insurance. It was called medical indemnity insurance. And then it would pay you, the patient, and you would take the money and you would use it to find and pay a doctor and to find and pay a hospital of your choice. And the doctors and hospitals knew about what would be paid for these things. And so they priced them somewhat accordingly. And you could find a doctor that would pay more than another doctor, but you like that doctor better. And so you're going to pay for that doctor, but the cash is in your hand from the insurance company for the really expensive things. So it acted as true insurance to protect you financially. So it wasn't devastating to you financially. And then you paid cash for the things that were a routine and minor. 
And you had so much more money in your pocket anyway, because true insurance is very affordable because most people don't use it. Twyla, if people want to get a copy of your book, Big Brother in the Exam Room, or if they want to get more information on what we've been talking about online, tell us how, please. So they can go to any online um, bookseller, you know, whether that's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever, and just order the book. I know it's on Amazon, just to be ordered right directly from there. They can go to bigbrotherintheexamroom.com if they want to just see a little bit more about the book before they buy it, or they can go to our website, cchfreedom.org cchfreedom.org and they can find out more information about all the things that we have talked about today. Twyla Bray is a really appreciate the work that you're doing for health freedom and I thank you for joining us today on the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you so much. That concludes another edition of the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.